chapter number six tonight will be Ecclesiastes chapter number six. And as you turn there, can you do two things at one time? Yes or no? All right, here we go. See. All right. See. 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 If I just ruined it for some of you, Hawks won today. And so one step closer to the Super Bowl. I heard that they called it the Ambulance Bowl. Did y'all hear about that? Because all the in injuries for the Eagles and for uh, Philly, or excuse me, for Seattle. And so I hope you enjoyed your time. Ne next week, I think the game, is it, is it Saturday? Sunday. What time? Who said that? Who said 340? What chapter in the Bible did you read this morning? <laughs> 340 next week. I'm excited. Uh, I'll just throw this little plug in. Uh, God does want us to be happy, right? He does want us to enjoy ourselves, message that I preached a couple of weeks ago, but don't enjoy yourself at the expense of enriching yourself spiritually over the next couple of weeks. I don't care if the Seahawks win or not. What's happening here in this church and what God is doing in the services here are more important than whether or not the Seahawks win, all right? Uh, I figured maybe a little more feedback there. You agree, or at least reluctantly agree with me, act spiritual, no uh, God is more pleased with what's going on in here, and I said it this morning, but those of you who are here this morning and you're here tonight, you're batting a thousand. You're in, in church on Sunday every single day. Don't let that streak stop next week. Be here, be in your place as often as you can be in 2020. I promise you that if you will make the commitment to be as committed as possible to the ministry and to the work of the Lord here, God will bless you for it. And I have great authority, authority upon the word of God to give you that guarantee. I'm not saying that if you're not here that God won't bless you or allow you to have prosperity. But you want to be in on what God is doing here. Trust me, you do. So take that uh, uh, thing that Pastor handed out this morning, the calendar, and work everything else in life around that. Not the other way around. I promise you that God will bless you if you'll do that. And uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. I I'm all for vacations. I think you should take vacations. I think that you should spend time with family. I think you should do everything possible to enjoy this year and make 2020 the greatest year ever. But I can promise you that if you'll just surround yourself with doing the work of the Lord and having a relationship with him this year, God will bless you for it. And I can guarantee you that. And so I just thought I'd throw that out there as you're looking and making uh, your preparations for the year. Keep that in mind. Ecclesiastes chapter Chapter 6, uh, this is message number 9 in a series of messages we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and again we're in chapter number 6, we'll cover the entire chapter tonight, but just for a sake of time, let's just read by way of introduction, page, or excuse me, uh, let's read, I'm in choir mode, I almost said measure number 12, excuse me, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse number 12, read with me there, it says, for who knoweth what is good for a man in this life all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? There's two words I want to draw your attention to in verse number 12 of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I said them kind of funny and with emphasis on purpose. I want you to notice the word who. And I want you to notice the word what. It appears twice. Both of them appear twice in just the, uh, in just the 12th verse of chapter number 6. It says, For who knoweth what is good for man in this life all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Tonight, for just a few moments, in light of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, I'd like to talk to you about this subject. Focus 2020. Focus 2020 or Focus 2020. I refused to call this Vision 2020. 
All right, uh, there's every single independent Baptist church that has a theme, I feel like, is some way, shape, or form trying to integrate Vision 2020 into their theme. So tonight, do not write Vision 2020 in your notes. It is Focus 2020. All right, Focus 2020. Let's say a word of prayer and ask the Lord's blessing upon the message tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me in a special way tonight as I preach and as I expound upon this chapter. It's a short chapter. There's a lot to cover, Lord. I believe that there's some great truth that you have, though simple. I think that they're very profound in their effect. And, and Lord, I pray that everybody that's listening, they listen with an open heart and open mind. Lord, as we look at this year and we look at the things that you have in store for us, you have a good, perfect, and acceptable will that you've set for every single member of Wooden Valley Baptist Church. You desire to have your way in this church and in the membership, and I believe that you desire to prosper every single member of this church. But Lord, I pray that as just I said a moment ago, that as we map out the new year and we focus in on what we're going to be doing this year, a lot of things demand our attention, demand our focus, but our focus ought to be on you. And I pray that that would be uh, said amongst the membership of this church, that Lord, as we look and we plan for the year, that we would plan everything around our center focus, and that would be, what do you want for us in this year? Lord, I pray that that would be our heart's desire tonight, and that you'd speak to me, speak through me in a special way again, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for reading with me, praying with me. I hope you did that. All right, story time. Uh, this year is 2020, and my wife and I, this year in July, will celebrate uh, seven years of marriage. We've been married for seven years, and uh, we've been together uh, uh, dating, I don't know, since 2011, 2012, so about nine years we've been together. And so uh, uh, back when I first visited Washington, I believe this was in the spring of 2012, when Rebecca and I were dating, was the first time that I ever came to Washington in general, but while we were dating, first time I came to Wooden Valley Baptist Church, met many of you, I've got some interesting stories. I am not great at first impressions. I'm terrible at first impressions. And so I'm still trying to weave through the perception of who you guys thought that I was or maybe who I even was back then. But uh, nonetheless, I remember visiting Washington. Let me back up and just tell you a little something about our relationship, okay? Uh, and, and those of you who are married or in a relationship, you know and understand the excitement of being able to hold hands. Hey, am I right? Uh, and and uh, you, I, I don't know that he was the wiser for this, but Pastor Farinella allowed me and Rebecca when we were dating to hold hands. Now to a preacher's kid who's never given a hug, side hug or a high five to a, uh, another female, you understand that the, the idea that I get to hold the most beautiful girl in the world's hands was euphoric. I'm talking like this was the greatest thing in the world. And I still think that I love holding her hand and I appreciate that. But every single opportunity, let me preach over here. Every single opportunity that we got, we held hands. As often as we could, we'd hold hands in the grocery store. We'd hold hands, she's embarrassed. We'd hold hands at pastor's house. We would hold hands in the car. We would hold hands in, I mean, everywhere. We would just desire to hold hands. And so uh, I share that with you. Now let's go back to when I first came to Washington in 2012. My wife and I, or Rebecca and I were dating at the time. And uh, she had a 1996 or 97? I believe the 96 Toyota Tercel. It was a two-door Toyota Tercel. had like 900,000 miles on it. I mean, this thing was just, uh, and it worked somehow. Like you had to do, you know, told your tongue just right to get it to shift. But it ran and it was a six-speed transmission, all right? And so you had to have both hands to operate the vehicle. You had to have two feet to operate the vehicle. One for the clutch, one for the brake, one for the gas. And so you all know how to drive a stick, right? You understand the concept. And so it takes two hands and it takes two feet to be able to operate the vehicle. 
And I can remember us driving. I was sitting in the passenger side and she was driving and we were following, I think, Luke and Melody over to their house in Lake Stevens. And we were going down Highway 9 or something of that nature. I don't remember exactly where it was, but I remember driving and I remember leaning over and I remember just taking my hand and placing it on top her hand, which is on top of the shifter, on top of the stick. And it was like boys to men just started playing. I'll make love to you. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, it was, it was amazing. Forgive me, Father. It was amazing. Uh, I, you laugh, but I'm serious. If you were ever in that position where you were completely sheltered, by the way, I make fun, but I'm thankful that I was sheltered and I'm thankful uh, for the protection of my family as well as the protection of the Farinella family upon my wife to where we're the only people that we've ever known physically and intimately. I'm so thankful for that. But anyways, it was euphoric. It was amazing. It was such a great feeling. And I looked over at her and I touched her hand and she looked over at me and our eyes locked together. And again, it was just like beautiful music started playing in the background. There's one problem with that, though. It doesn't just take two feet and two hands to operate an automatic, or excuse me, a, a, a manual transmission. It also takes two eyes to operate any kind of vehicle. Newsflash, you have to have two eyes, and they have to be focused on the road. Am I right? When I put my hand on Rebecca's hand on the shifter, and her eyes met, her focus was all right here. And it was all on me. And at about 50 miles an hour, we hit a curb. Going about 50 miles an hour, we hit a curb and uh, she began to swerve and lose control we, and finally regained control and she's sitting there gripping the steering wheel and I'm sitting there gripping my seat and we both look to our right simultaneously and we just see her hubcap go foo, 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 and it goes off into oblivion. And it was an amazing experience but it scared the snot out of me. Scared the snot out of her. Matter of fact, maybe the Lord was rebuking us for holding hands and maybe we shouldn't have been holding hands. I don't know. But I, I just remember that experience and I remember her focus going off of what it should have been and onto me. Now, I'm important. I'm important in her life, I believe. But at the time, I was not what was most important. What was most important was for, to, her, for her to keep her trajectory and keep her focus on the road. Now, I share that as a funny illustration just to simply share with you that it is so incredibly easy in the Christian life to lose focus, is it not? It's very easy for us to look at things and maybe we even get our attention on things that are important but they are not of utmost importance and it becomes very easy for us to lose focus. It becomes very easy for us to make sure that we're, uh, we're converged on one point and our attention is converged on what God would have us uh, converge our attention upon. The word focus means that, to converge our attention on a conceived point. I need you to get that because I'll reference that a number of times here in the message tonight. Focus means this, to converge our attention on a conceived point. And again, if we're not careful, we can, as Christians, converge our attention on things that might be important, but are things, uh, uh, we can converge our attention on things that are of, not of utmost importance. It, it can be very easy for us to lose focus is what I'm saying. And in Ecclesiastes chapter number six, God teaches us something so incredibly important about when we converge our attention onto something that is not fulfilling. All right? Uh, we could say it this way. God through Solomon, watch. God through Solomon warns us about placing our focus upon the what's rather than placing our focus upon the who. You understand? It's a very profound truth in its effect, but look at verse number 12. It says, for who, remember those two words? For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? In other words, who can predict my future? 
Who can predict my future? Who can tell me uh, what lies before me? Who knows about tomorrow? That's a great question that I, I'm sure many of us have asked from time to time in regards to our life, in regards to our family, in regards to our children. Who knows what is to behold my children in the future? I'm excited about next Sunday, not just because it's Vision Sunday, but I'll have the opportunity, as well as the Barnards will have opportunity to dedicate our little uh, girl and their little boy to the Lord. I'm excited about that having a baby dedication next Sunday. Uh, but when you think about that, if you've ever done that before, we did it with Dax, that's a very humbling, humbling experience. Because as Pastor said, it's really not a baby dedication, is it? It's a parent dedication. And it gets your mind kind of thinking, who on earth is in control of my daughter's life, of my son's life? It's a very sobering thought. Who's in control of their future? Who's going to decide uh, what is on the morrow for my children and the next generation? Any parent would agree with me that that weighs heavily upon your heart whenever you look uh, beyond the walls of this church and you see the condition of the world. Again, it kind of brings reason for alarm and reason for concern. Who's in control of all this? And I couldn't help but think the, the timing of this message, and just, this is just the way that the Lord worked in regards to where we're at in our series, but this is the first Sunday in 2020. Today is January 5th of 2020. This is the first Sunday in this new year, and so uh, maybe you're looking at uncertainties that 2020 will bring you. Maybe you're looking at this new year and you see a lot of uncertainties. 2020 holds a lot of uncertainties, uncertain what's in our 2020 that for many of us bring great reason for alarm. It brings great reason for us to take heed and pay attention. Let me just ask this question. How many of you left all of your problems in 2019? How many of you carried over your 2019 problems into 2020? It's the fifth day of the year. How many of you already have 2020 problems? <laughs> Solomon is going to show us how frustrating life can be when our attention is converged on the what rather than converged on the who. In light of this new year, I want us to answer this question. What will happen when we get our focus off of the who and place it upon the what in 2020? What is going to happen when we converge our attention on what is of utmost importance to what is of least importance? A few things I want us to cover very quickly tonight. Number one, financial riches are miserable without God in focus. Financial riches are miserable without God in fo uh, focus. According to an article written in Forbes magazine, if you ask the average American what they uh, would need to be truly happy, their answer would be this. Can you take a guess? More money. Shocker. More money. Uh, and I, again, I don't really find that shocking. You know what I find shocking? There was an article that came out at a recent time. It was conducted by uh, the Berna Re uh, Research Institution. And they, they do a lot of research in regards to religiosity, in regards to what's going on, the religious trends of the day. And a similar article came out at the same time asking Christians the same question. You know what their answer was? I want to reach the next status at my job. That was the most popular answer. Now, doesn't that just sound spiritual? But it's just as carnal as wanting more money, except for the world has more boldness to speak the truth. It's the same answer. You want more success. You want more money. You want more possessions. You want to reach the next level in your position, in your job. With that in mind, look at verse number one. Solomon says this. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches. Pause for a second. Again, he repeats it time and time again, but every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from where? Above. 
And so Solomon, once again, he, he says, I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity. And then he says something he hasn't said thus far. He says, and it is an evil disease. That's a very powerful truth when you consider who's saying this. It's an evil disease. Here's what Solomon is saying. When you get the what, when you get your focus upon the what, what's the, what's the what? The riches and the honor and the wealth that he just referenced. When you get your focus on the what before the who, you know what? You're miserable. You're miserable. Solomon is saying that when your focus is on the possessions rather than the provider, it's like an evil disease that consumes you. He doesn't say that it's just bad. He doesn't just say it's vexation and vanity of spirit. He compares it to an evil disease that consumes you. Kind of goes back to what we said just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the last message that we preached in this series. The more you want, the more you have. The more you want, the more you worry. The more you want, the more you lose. Solomon knows a thing or two about that, doesn't he? Solomon understands what it means to attain all that wealth and attain all the, all the goods and the riches and the honor. He knows exactly what it means to attain all those different things. And uh, we won't read it, but in 2 Chronicles chapter number 1 and verse number 11 and 12, Solomon asks for wisdom. We know the story, but he appears before God. And uh, he asks for wisdom. And God says, all right, I'm going to give you wisdom. But I'm not only going to give you wisdom, I'm also going to give you wealth beyond uh, compare. And I'm going to give you honor in your reign as king. And so that's exactly what God does. He bestows him with wisdom, but he gives him wealth, more wealth than anybody else in history at that point in time. He was the most wealthy, one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, and Solomon really does enjoy the prosperity of God at first, doesn't he? I mean, he does. He, he does. Pastor's been preaching this past year through the book of, uh, the book of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles and even First and Second Kings, and it has all to do with the beginning of the reign of King Solomon, and Solomon did a lot of great things for God, and he enjoyed the things that God gave him, but why did he enjoy those things? The reason that he enjoyed those things was because his focus was on the who, and it wasn't on the what. His focus was uh, converged, his attention was converged on the giver of gifts and not the gifts themselves. Matter of fact, that's exactly why God gave Solomon wisdom to begin with. I, I'm going to read this verse. First Chronicles chapter number 1 and verse number 1. It says, And Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. Did you see that? The Lord his God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. The reason God magnified Solomon exceedingly was because Solomon was focused on God and not focused on God's provisions that he's given him. He was focused on the who and he wasn't focused on the what. Solomon goes on to do, again, some great things for God. He builds the temple. It takes seven years to do so. And he's one of the greatest kings in the nation of Israel's history. And all of those things go away. What happened? 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse number 1. Lengthy portion of scripture. Let me read it to you. Here's what happens to Solomon. God gives him wisdom. God gives him wealth. God gives him honor. Uh, Solomon keeps his focus. He keeps his attention converged on the who and not the what. But here's what happens. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Pause for a moment. Many strange women. I've, I've, I've already referenced this text a number of different times in the series. But I've not taken time to really talk about strange women. You know what Solomon is saying right here? You know what they're talking about in regards to strange women? Not peculiar women, although I'm sure with a thousand wives, some 700 wives and 300 concubines, we'll see there are probably a couple of weird ones along the way. But you know what strange means? They didn't belong to him. 
Uh, they, they weren't his possession. Uh, they were not what God had given Solomon. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughters of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. Then God says this, Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go to them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Exactly what happens in the life of Solomon. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect or set. Or his trajectory was not focused upon the who. With the Lord his God as his heart of, excuse me, as the heart of David his father was. Now we don't have time to do a study, but if you do your own study and you look into the life of Solomon, you'll find uh, that the reason that Solomon got into a relationship with a lot of these women had nothing to do with what they looked like. They had, they had nothing to do with whether or not Solomon, uh, they were Solomon's type. They, it wasn't their personality. They didn't match up on Tinder, none of that stuff. Solomon didn't get into a relationship with these women. Most of the women, because of how they looked or how they made him feel, Solomon did it for two reasons, wealth and riches. He did it because the relationship he would enter into, uh, the, the relationship that he would enter in with some of these women meant the dowry cost or what it would pay Solomon in the nation of Israel to build a marital alliance with some of these nations. By the way, again, the nations that God was very specific not to enter into a relationship with. There was great monetary gain to be uh, withheld in regards to these relationships. And I believe that's what motivated Solomon to get into these relationships with these 1,000 women. What's it going to gain me monetarily? What's it going to gain me in regards to my riches and my palace and my possessions? Now, hold on a minute. The reason I draw attention to that is, was God able to prosper Solomon without Solomon intervening? Absolutely. So, I mean, a matter of fact, Solomon is in the position that he was in prior to all these women because God placed him there. Solomon didn't have to intervene. Solomon didn't have to get in the way. Solomon didn't have to interject himself. God could have prospered Solomon all that God wanted to, but nonetheless, uh, Solomon got his focus off of the who, and he placed it upon the what. And you know what that led to in the life of Solomon? The book of Ecclesiastes. The book we've been preaching out of, and the book we've been referencing, the book that we just read from, uh, again, one of the most despairing and one of the most discouraging books in all of the Bible. All of those decisions led to one of the saddest, uh, uh, one of the saddest chapters in all of the Word of God, a man who had such potential, a man who had already done great things for God, a man who had great wisdom. All of those things came to a crashing halt because Solomon got his focus off of the who and started placing it upon the what. And his motive was to attain and build. First-hand wisdom from Solomon. Financial riches are miserable without God in focus. Here's the second one. <clears throat> Here's the second one. Family relationships are meaningless without God in focus. Family relationships are meaningless without God in focus. Uh, look what Solomon says in verse number three of our text. It says, if a man begat on hundred children, pause for a moment, let's have a little Bible study, who had the most biological children in all of the word of God. Anybody want to take a wild guess? Who had the most children, biological children in all of the word of God? No, it's a man by the name of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Solomon's son has some 88 children. 
Solomon's son has 88 children, and so I want you to just keep that in mind as we're reading. We'll reference that in here in just a moment. And Solomon asks this question, If a man begat a hundred children and live many years, so that the day of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he, for he cometh in with vanity and departeth in, dark, departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Verse 5, Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest, excuse me, this hath more rest than the other, yea, though he live, look at this, a thousand years twice told, two thousand years, yet hath he seen no good, do not all go to one place. He says it again. Uh, now I'll be the first to admit, uh, as I was studying this, and I was looking at this a couple of months ago, and I was looking, I just scratched my head and stared at the sheetrock for about 30 minutes saying, God, what on earth does this even mean? What is Solomon trying to say? I don't understand. This is a very confusing portion of scripture, but here's what it means. Here's what Solomon is saying. He's using this extreme hyperbole to exaggerate a very important point. Extreme hyperbole, he's using two extremes really. And here's what he says. He paints the picture of a man who lives 2,000 years and has 100 children. Okay, you saw that, right? Lives 2,000 years, 1,000 years twice told, uh, twice told and has 100 children. Now, we know this according to the Old Testament, there are two major signs of blessing in the Jewish culture. What are they? Long years, many children. Long years and many children. It, it, was, it was a sign of tremendous blessing the longer that you would live. And it was a sign of tremendous blessing in regards to how many children that you would have. So again, Solomon paints this picture of a man who's lived 2,000 years and has 100 children. Now hold on, pause. I don't want to add to the word of God. But let's just use deductive reasoning here. If they're 2,000 years old, they've probably seen many generations. Would you not agree? If they have a hundred children, although it doesn't say in this hypothetical approach, in this hypothetical question that he's asking, could we not derive that that probably meant a lot of grandchildren? Probably even meant 2,000 years, probably even meant a lot of great-grandchildren and a lot of great-great-grandchildren. And so it wasn't just someone who's lived long, it's someone who's lived long and had many generations under their family tree. He's lived to see many generations come under his family tree but he says this, he comes to the end of his life and he has no burial. He has no burial. Look at it, it says, his soul be not filled with good and also that he have no burial. In other words, no one shows up to this guy's funeral. No one shows up to this guy's funeral, not his children, not his grandchildren, his great-great-grandchildren, his great-great-great-grandchildren, uh, not his wife. None of those family relationships show up to his, his funeral. No one's there. No one's in, atten uh, in attendance. Just as living long and having many children was a sign of blessing in the Jewish culture, not having a funeral where many in attendance were present is equally as dishonorable. You understand that in the Old Testament? It would be completely dishonorable if you were to live your life and you were to die and no one would show up to your funeral. Jeremiah gives us uh, an illustration of that. And in 20, uh, chapter 22 and verse number 18, it says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. So you understand that in the Jewish culture, it was considered a curse to live a life regardless of the amount of prosperity that you experience. If you're to die and not be given a burial where people are attending your funeral, it was very dishonorable. 
So Solomon says, can you imagine with me? This man lives 2,000 years, has a hundred children, several thousand probably descendants of those hundred children. But then he says this in verse number three. He gets to the end of his life. He has no burial. Remember, that's dishonorable. And then he says this in verse number three. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. An untimely birth is better than he. To put it in modern vernacular, here's what Solomon is saying. It would be better to be a stillborn baby than to waste the relationships that God has given you in your life. That's what Solomon's saying. It would be better to have an untimely birth. It would be better to be a stillborn baby than to live a life regardless of how long, regardless of how many children you have, regardless of the amount of blessing you experience in your life. It would be better to have an untimely birth than to not have a burial, than to live that kind of life, than to waste those relationships that God has placed in your life. Solomon is saying, here we go, that you can be a biological father without being a good one. He's saying you could be a biological mother without being a good one. Uh, you could be a sister without being a good one. Amen? Be a brother. Uh, you could be a grandparent without being a good one. That's what Solomon is saying. I, I say uh, that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh with, uh, in with vanity, he's born with vanity, and departeth in darkness, he dies in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything, this hath more rest than the other. Solomon says that family relationships are meaningless without God in focus. Here's the last one. Solomon says that family routine, excuse me, familiar routine are mundane without God in focus. Familiar routine are mundane uh, without God in focus. He says a number of different things I want us to look at. Here's the first one. Labor is mundane without God in focus. Verse 7. Labor is mundane without God in focus. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. A man works his life away trying to find fulfillment in his life and in his labor, but he cannot feed his appetite. He's not able to find that kind of fulfillment in his labor and in his work. In other words, the more you focus on work as a source of fulfillment, the more dissatisfied you find yourself. Why? Because, excuse me, your attention is converged on the wrong thing. He's not saying that labor is wrong. Matter of fact, the Word of God has a lot to say about a man laboring for his food and laboring uh, for his life. But he's saying that if you find that as your source of fulfillment, you're not going to be able to satisfy your appetite. Nay, the opposite. The harder you work at finding fulfillment in the labor, the less satisfied you will become. Why? Your attention is on the wrong thing. Your focus is on the wrong thing. One commentator put it this way. We work to feed our appetites. Meanwhile, our souls go hungry. Work is mundane without God in focus. Here's the second one. Learning is mundane without God in focus. Learning is mundane without God in focus. Verse number eight, it says, uh, For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? In other words, Solomon says that education is the, isn't the answer either. Lamar, are you stealing notes from previous uh, lessons? You keep repeating yourself. If uh, you keep repeating yourself, you say, yes, uh, you can't find satisfaction in your labor and you can't find satisfaction in your education. Um, consider who's writing. And Solomon repeats himself time and time and time and time again in Scripture. And I'm just preaching the text. But Solomon repeats himself time and time again in Scripture probably because it was something that Solomon thought was very important that you get and you understand. 
You're not going to find satisfaction in your labor. You're not going to find yourself satisfaction in, in your endeavors. And you're not going to find yourself uh, satisfied in your education. Just because you're wise, he says in previous chapters, you have the same death that awaits you as the fool. Previous chapter, he says, as the beast. Education is not the answer. You cannot find fulfillment. You cannot find satisfaction. You can attain all the knowledge that the world has to offer. Again, who's talking here? Solomon, a guy who quite possibly could have been the smartest man in all the history of the world. You can gain all uh, the knowledge that the world has to offer, but it's all mundane without God in focus. It's all mundane without God in focus. Labor is mundane and learning is mundane. Here's the third one. Longing is mundane. Verse 9. This is a very interesting verse. It says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the desire. Uh, this past week, we celebrated, uh, you know, going from 2019 to going to 2020. And uh, I mean, seriously, at like 12 o'clock on the dot, 12 o'clock a.m. on January 1st, Facebook and Instagram exploded with all this rich, great content of all these people that say something along the lines of hashtag new year, new me, right? So you seen some of those? How many of you made some of those? Be honest. No? I saw a bunch of different posts about uh, new year, new me, and this is my year, and I'm going to own it this year. And I, I saw a bunch of posts. Here's one that I saw I thought was quite interesting. 2020, the year my dreams become reality. Isn't that so carnal? Uh, that's how we feel, though, is it not? A new year presents new opportuni uh, opportunities. 2020, the year that my dreams become reality. Uh, the new year, and with every new year comes what? New year's resolutions, right? And I'm all for that. Hey, I, I think you ought to make New Year's resolutions. I think you ought to set goals for yourself. Uh, some of you, you've set all these uh, sorts of different goals, and I think it's wonderful, and I think you should try to attain achieving those kind of goals. But let me just help you. Here's what you should do tonight. When you go home, take, uh, take a sheet of paper, and I want you to write down every single goal that you have for 2020, and next to it, write Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse number 9. Because here's what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying uh, that when you get your focus on the dreams and the desires, it will cause your eyes to wonder and your focus will then be on the what rather than the who. It's okay to have desires. It's okay to have dreams. But if you allow your desires to get away from your sight and having your focus fixed on God, it leads to a it leads to a, a, car, a carnal approach and a carnal perspective of the things of God. Solomon warns us that financial riches are miserable without God in focus. Solomon warns us that uh, family relationships are meaningless without God in focus. And then he warns us that familiar routines are mundane without God in focus. The who must come before the what. The who must come before the what. Uh, but here's what I want us to draw our attention to. And this is where I want to connect the dots to what we're talking about tonight. This is my conclusion. We're closing and we'll be done here in just a moment. I want us to answer this question, all right? And it's going to sound like a question that I should be asking the four and five-year-olds in our Sunday school department, but I'm asking every single person, every single adult in here this question, and I want you to hear me. Why should I focus on God in 2020? Why should I focus on God in 2020? Two things will be done. Number one, the God of 2019 is the God of 2020. That's a comforting thought. 
The God of 2019 is the God of 2020. Look at verse number 10. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. I'm glad he put that last part in. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. God clearly says right here that it, 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 it has been named already and the same sovereign God who is in control of your 2019 is already working in 2020. The same God who was with you in 2019 is the same God who's with you in 2020. Here's a sobering thought. Did you know that everything that happened to you in 2019 happened because God allowed it to happen and he allowed it to happen for one reason and one reason only, to draw you closer to him. Every single thing that occurred to you in 2019, the good, the bad, the ugly, I'm talking about the promotions that you got overlooked for, the family relationships that were not mended because someone said the wrong thing. I'm talking about even the prosperity and everything that happened in your life, the good, the bad, doesn't matter what it is. God allowed it to happen in your life and he allowed it to happen in your life so that you would draw closer to him. Let me ask you a series of questions. How many of you fought God on some things in 2019? Be honest. Fought God on some things in, in 2019. How many of you questioned God on some decisions that he made in 2019? I don't want to belittle his holiness, but I think that I'm not the only one who's been guilty of looking at God who is sovereign and who's in control, who's mighty and me, who's finite, and saying, really God? That's the decision you decided to make? There's things that we would have done differently there's things that we would have unfolded differently. There's situations that happened that we wouldn't have had happened or we would have changed the outcome. But there's a reason why God is in heaven and we are on earth, as he says in chapter number three. Because he's holy and we're not. Let me ask you a follow-up question. How many of you were forsaken by God in 2019? Not a one. And although the year might have unfolded, maybe not like you would have desired, I'm so thankful that God did not forsake me for one moment in 2019. And you know what I can do with that? I can take that and carry it over into 2020. The God of 2019 is the God of 2020. Verse 11. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? Man. I'll read it again. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? When I, when I read that verse, my mind instantly went to the words of King Solomon's father, King David, in Psalm chapter number 37, verse number 23, very familiar passage. Uh, David says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. How many of you, that verse describes your 2019? Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. I have been young and am now old. Powerful verse. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging bread. Why should I focus on God in 2020? Because the God of 2019 is the God of 2020. He's already working in your tomorrow. Here's the last one. Why should I focus on God in 2020? God knows what's best for you in 2020. God knows what's best for you in 2020. Verse 12. For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? I don't want to add to or take away from the word of God, but just for sake of my point. For who knoweth what is good for man in this year? 
It's a great question, and I think that if we were to answer this question this evening, what would I do to make 2020 a better year for me? We'd come with all, up with all sorts of different answers. Everybody would have a different idea of what you'd do differently in 2020 to make this your year, make this the year your dreams come true, uh, your dreams come true, make this the best year of your life. But Solomon is asking a rhetorical question here. And he's saying, for who knoweth what is good for man in this life all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. I think of that verse. A uh, life appeareth for a brief time and then it vanisheth away. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Solomon ends this chapter summarizing the hopelessness of the pursuit of control that we were never meant to attain. He ends the chapter drawing attention to the fact that we are so ever trying to attain a control of something that us and in our finite beings cannot attain. And that's to be in control of every decision, every outcome, uh, every, everything that happens in our life. We want to be in control. Hey, who knoweth? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? I'll ask the question again. Why should I focus on God in 2020? Here's why. Because he's the one who controls it. He's the one who controls it and there is great peace to be found and joy to be had in the new year when we converge our attention on the who rather than focusing on the what. Therefore, with that in mind, let us focus on the who in 2020. Let us focus on the who in 2020. I don't know who holds tomorrow, but I know who holds my hand. You know, God knows what's going to happen, not just this year, but the year after that, the year after that. And all those things that you're fretting about, all those things you're discouraged about, he knows the end from the beginning. He's at work in the previous years. He's been at work since the day that you were born. Uh, so intricately working and sovereignly working in your life, why would we not trust him to continue? Being him uh, who's holy and knows about our tomorrow. Let's focus on God in 2020. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us. Thank you so much.